Welcome to the Wildscast. I am so proud to present this conversation I just had with two very smart Jews, okay? Aaron Zimmer and Ellie Fader. They have their own podcast called From Physics to God. They're brilliant. One has a PhD in algebra, um, in mathematics. The other one has a degree in physics, and they're both very learned and knowledgeable Jews, actually both ordained rabbis. And we got into the concept and to the discussion of science and religion, specifically God. How can we know that there's a God from studying physics? And why is it that some scientists who are great physicists do not believe in God? And how do we reconcile our belief in God if you have one, or if you're struggling with your belief in God, what are some proofs? Or maybe we shouldn't use the word proof. What is some compelling arguments for the belief in God? That's one of the things that we discussed as well. We got into the whole issue of multiverse because some scientists believe that the universe, that there's many universes out there, and they're using that to explain the world without a God. But is there any evidence for the multiverse? We got into that um, important question and then discussed some other issues that have to do with the Torah itself, with the Bible, right? Do we have to read everything literally in the Torah, especially if it conflicts with science? What do you do when you come across a a verse in the Torah, a pasuk in Chumash, that seems to conflict with proven modern-day science. What do we do that with that in Judaism? And are we really in control of our decisions in life, or are we just sort of playing out some kind of script that someone else has written? The belief, the fundamental Jewish belief in free will, why is it that some scientists don't believe in this? Many do. Many philosophers debate and discuss this. What does the Torah have to say? Take a peek, take a listen, and of course, subscribe. Welcome to the Wildscast. Uh, I am on yep. with Aaron Zimmer and Ellie Fader, both of whom are well-versed in both physics and Torah. Uh, tell us a little, for those um, who are not familiar with your own podcast, with your own background, uh, where did you guys study both Judaism and science? Uh, and tell us a little about the work that you guys are doing. Okay, so um, I'm Ellie Fader. I studied um, Torah at Yeshiva B'nai Torah. I received Smicha, Yorah Yorah, and Yadin Yadin there from my Rebbe, Rabbi Chait. And while I was doing Yeshiva, I studied in Queens College undergraduate. I went to CUNY Graduate Center, in which I received a PhD in a field of math called algebra, specifically braid group to cryptography. And now I do research in a field called graph theory. I'm interested not only in mathematics, mm -hmm. I'm also interested in physics and science and psychology and philosophy. I have a wider, wider variety of interests. Beautiful. Thank you. By the way, uh, Ellie and I also studied at Rabbi Chait's Yeshiva a long time ago. I was there for two years, had a great experience. But um, I didn't get smicha from them. I went to YU and I didn't get yadin yadin at all. So that's really impressive. And I certainly don't have a PhD. Uh, Aaron, tell us, wh what's your background? Okay, so that makes three of us here, here who uh, when I learned that Yeshiva B'nai Torah. Uh, I got smicha from uh, Rabbi Chait. And... Um, <clears throat> I, um, I, I went to Queens College for undergraduate. I got a degree in uh, physics there. And after that, and, uh, you know, I was deciding whether to go to graduate school or not. I chose to go into commodities future trading. We're trading uh, cotton and sugar and natural gas and oil, uh, crude oil. And um, I did that for 11 years using um, the ideas I learned from physics, the categories from physics, and the brisker derech that was taught in, you know, in Yeshiva B'nai Torah, using those conceptual categories to analyze markets and to think categorically. And I was able to, you know, retire after 11 years of trading commodities futures. And now I learned Torah with, um, with Ellie, Ellie amongst, you know, other people, other chavrusas. Uh, You're still and, learning, um, learning at Rabbi Chait's? Am I still, I was, you know, I was in Shear for 17 years. I gave Shear there, um, Gemara Shear for two years. Um, and I just have, you know, chavrusas and um, basically, yeah, still, still there. I, mean, I never leave the yeshiva. Why would you leave, you know, if you don't have to? <laughs> so, um, you know, I try to trade at the work, but 
I traded commodities and I learned Torah and now I'm making this podcast, Physics to God, to try to, you know, kind of synthesize, put together ideas of God and, and physics uh, to, you know, try to unify the two, um, the two different streams in my life. Wow. Well, Kalakavo, that you're able to be so devoted to learning at this stage of life and um, continuing to study science at the same time. So you guys are quite qualified in both areas, I have to say. Uh, we got some doctorates, a lot of smichas, a lot of rabbinic ordinations here. So let's dive right into it. Um, first of all, do you think religious Jews are, should be doing, or any Jew really should be doing what you're doing, which is not only to study Torah, but to study science? Why is that so important? Well, <clears throat> the way we see it is that, um, that Hashem is the author of the Torah, and he also created the universe. And... A person could see the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu through both areas. As the Rambam describes, the mitzvah of Hashem stems from a person seeing the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the universe. Yeah, so, so our primary preoccupation is with learning Torah. But at the same time, we, see the, we like to study science, to read science, to see the wisdom of God manifest in all of his work. Uh, I would just add one thing is that as, you know, for the question of religious Jews, is I, I find that, unfortunately, like a lot of religious Jews relate to, especially modern Orthodox, um, relate to science as, and they, they encourage learning science, but it's really for like the means of, of having a profession and being successful and making money. And, and it's not really, like there's idea of Torah Lishma, but people don't think of science Lishma. And but what does that mean? Like, like Eli was, Just explain oh, Lishma. Lishma. Oh, okay, for, meaning for its own sake, there's an intrinsic value in studying the natural world that God created and understanding it and seeing the wisdom of God in, in, in the world. And it's not just a means of getting a job and, and making money, but there's, there's just valuing value in, in, in knowing the natural world and seeing how it leads to God. And it gets, it makes you appreciate uh, that, you know, the creator of the, of the universe. And, and, and I think that there's in a certain sense, it's, it's science is not really emphasized for, uh, for its own sake, as much as, you know, Torah is for its own sake, but there's also value in understanding the world God created for its own sake. Sure, sure. That's a great point. Um, so let's get into some of the issues um, because you're both extremely. And by the way, I also want to thank our good friend, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, who I met many, many years ago at Yeshiva B'nai Torah and has been on the MG staff for a long time. Um, I think he's our Shadchan. He's how we met each, we met each other. So do you fundamentally argue, and how can you fundamentally argue that modern physics conclusively points to a creator? Um, conclusively, or is it just, you know, I'm writing something now, a basic Judaism book, and what I'm arguing is that of the two options, which is that there is a creator behind the universe, or there isn't a creator, and things spontaneously sort of exploded into existence or over, through evolution developed on their own. I'm, I argue that like the God, the, the, the God rationale makes more sense than the alternative that science gives. But do you believe that, that there is a conclusive necessarily we get to this conclusion kind of thing? So if you say like a con conclusive and, and the word proof and things like that, people sometimes think you mean like these absolute proof, like in mathematics, where it has to be, it's impossible in the other way. What we say is a convincing and compelling argument, which I think mm -hmm. sounds a little bit stronger than the way you're framing it in your book. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand there's like a certain amount of skepticism people might have that you really could have a really convincing, compelling argument that God exists from, from physics. But we really, really do show that in the podcast. We've worked on this for it's really been 12 years. We've been writing a book for 10 years and start off as a blog. This whole, um, the whole argument discussed it with many people. And, um, and the only reason we're really, you know, making it public, it's because it's just so much, it's so much better than like in our opinion again, but so much better than all the other stuff that's out there. A lot of the other arguments that are out there are there, you know, are good arguments. Maybe God makes more sense than the others, or it's intuitive. You say this is, you know, more likely than that, but like this argument, when you get down to physics, and there's certain unique things about physics that make it special, for for really showing in a convincing way that God exists, um, it's it's really much better than um, the other stuff that's out there, in our opinion. 
And, um, and for that reason, like we, we really don't like when it gets like lumped into like a lot of the other ones, because a lot of the other arguments, because then you don't really realize how unique it is and how different it is, how much more convincing it is. So it's not an absolute proof, but it's convincing person who hears mm-hmm. the argument, understands it, as we try to do through our podcast, we think we'll be um, convinced and walk away that, that the proper inference from physics is that God exists. And, and, and can you share some of the physics or some of the science that leads you to believe that a compelling argument for God from modern day physics? Okay, so so on a basic level, it's um, there's various components to it, but just um, I guess you could say on on standing on one foot, argument is that um, modern science has discovered various features of our universe, special features of our universe. One of which is what they call the constants of nature. These are specific numbers which are built into the very fabric of our universe. Numbers, for example, like the mass of an electron, which is uh, or the strength, something called the fine structure constant, which is the strength of an electric charge. Um, and, and there's various numbers built into our universe. And these numbers, it's been shown by modern physics that had these numbers been different, have been out of a, outside of a small range of values, our universe as we know it simply wouldn't exist. We would never be able to have atoms. We wouldn't be able to have molecules. We wouldn't be able to have stars, planets, life. And these are features, these numbers are... Called fine, they're called fine-tuned. They're specifically tuned in a way which is necessary. Without, without these numbers being in this small range, all we would have is a chaotic sea of fundamental particles. And that's one, one type of a thing, is these constants are indication. We, we, uh, we illustrate how the precision of these numbers, the fact that they're in precisely the range necessary to bring about our, our universe, points to the fact that these numbers are connected with the purpose. Explain to us, layman, what, what do you mean by these numbers? Like the numbers that what, that go into, explain, just elaborate a little more if you don't mind. Well, maybe like, for example, um, you have in, in physics, you have qualities like two charges, like an electric charge, they attract each other if they're different, a proton electron. In the atom, they'll attract each other. But then how much do they attract each other? How strong is that? Um, that's a number. That's a quantity. So part of the very laws of physics is not just the fact that, let's say, two masses are attracted because of gravity. How strong is the strength of gravity? How strong is the strength of electromagnetism? Or how heavy is an electron? If you were to measure it, you were to weigh it, it could be very heavy. It could be very light. It happens to be it's very, very, very light. But Whenever you deal with the physical world, you're not just dealing with qualities, you're dealing with quantities. And mm-hmm. these are specific numbers that are set. They're f- called fundamental constants, meaning they mm-hmm. don't really have any explanation, a deeper explanation from the framework of physics. They're just like, just like this gravity is a fundamental law of nature. Part of the fundamental parts of nature that can't be reduced is a constant that's part of gravity, the strength of these types of things. Um, and, and that's what that's what these numbers represent, the quantities of nature. And, and they're always the same everywhere. Every electron is always the same mass, is always the same, is always as heavy. The strength of gravity uh, or electromagnetism is always the same. And these are set by these numbers called constants. And and how does these these numbers to you they lead to the belief in a god of creation? Because why? What's the next step then that I'm missing? It's been discovered by, by scientists, and this is accepted by scientists, atheists, theists alike, that these numbers, the previous, it was previously thought that these numbers are just numbers that could be anything. The way we know what these numbers are is we measure them. And whenever we measure the mass of an electron, it's always exactly the same. Some ridiculously small number, 0.0003, whatever, some long number. And these numbers, it was previously believed that the numbers could have just been anything, and whatever they were, so be it. But it was discovered more recently about many of these numbers and most convincingly in 1998 about something called the cosmological constant, which is that these numbers, had these numbers been any random value, then our universe as we know it would have never existed. And all we would have had is a totally empty, chaotic uh, universe with nothing complex in it, not even atoms. And 
the fact that these numbers, which scientists have no explanation for, Richard Feynman called explaining these numbers the greatest mystery in physics, or one of the greatest mysteries in physics. This problem of how do you explain these numbers, it was discovered that these numbers, the values of these numbers are precisely what they need to be, or within a small range of what they need to be in order to result in our in our universe, in the unfolding of our universe as the universe um, unfolds. And that's a shocking discovery, the fact that these numbers are so precise. And it's a discovery which, again, scientists, we everybody agrees with this discovery that these constants are fine-tuned. The only question is, which we answer one way and some scientists answer a different way, how do you interpret the fact that we have these crazy, this what seems to be this amazing coincidence that these values which happen to be the numbers which are precisely necessary. And, and you can't explain the existence of those numbers through modern evolutionary theory. In other words, the idea that everything is so precise. I mean, this is the argument, uh, the teleological argument that the complexity of the universe, the fact that we are, you know, this far away from the sun, you know, so that we still get the warmth of the sun, but we're not too close to the sun, so we don't burn up. So that precision you know, I've always felt, you know, implies a, a divine creator, something beyond human that creates this this specificity and complexity. But that cannot be that cannot be accounted for by any other scientific theory. Evolution cannot account for the precision of those numbers. Um, you know, I, I understand that they sound random, but don't 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 doesn't science explain randomness through evolution? So that, that's a great question. Um, there's like there's two points to answering that, but basically, you know, Elik spoke a little bit too extreme there. Scientists do have a theory for how to explain it. It's called the multiverse, which mm -hmm. is which is very similar to what what, you, what you're saying, right, Wilds? Is is that it's a theory that there is an infinite number of unobservable other universes, and all these universes have different values for these constants. So in one in one um, universe, an electron weighs what it does here, and an electron it's a hundred. In another universe, it's a hundred times heavier. Another universe is one hundred and sixty times lighter. So every single possible value of the constant exists in a different universe. Mm -hmm. And then you were to say it's it's kind of like the thing with you're saying with the with the um, the planet, is that if you're to say, well, what are the odds that these numbers came out exactly right for our universe, even though it, it really is in this incredibly small. Um, value if it's just by chance alone it's so unlikely to happen by chance alone I say look there's an infinite number of universes in one universe there's going to be a, a universe which has the proper constants and mm. we live in that universe because only that universe um is it possible to have an intelligent life asking the question of 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 why are these constants correct just like you were saying is there's these there's hundreds of billions of planets in the galaxy and now what are the odds that the earth is in exactly this Goldilocks zone, exactly this distance from the sun? Well, you know, the scientists will tell you that's not really a good question because all the other planets that are not the right distance from the sun, they don't have any intelligent life on it to ask the question. So it's not really a big, it's not really a big, you know, wonder that we live on a planet the perfect distance from the sun because there's hundreds of billions of planets. Some of them are in the right distance and all life can only evolve on, on this planet. But the key difference is that physics is fundamental. Biology is not. The, the distance between the Earth and the Sun is not a fundamental uh, principle. Fundamental, fundamental principle in nature. There's many planets that have different values, but these constants are part of the very laws and fundamental um, principles of nature. There's no there's no um, evidence that there's other universes with other laws of nature. It's totally speculated. These are unobservable universes. While we, while astronomers do view, we, we see, astronomers do see other planets. And that makes a big difference in whether there is validity to just speculating that. You know, they're not just speculating there's other planets, but multiverse scientists are really positing these unobservable parallel universes. That's a big difference between the two arguments. So, so that makes sense. Uh, I appreciate that clarification. Um, so you're saying at the end of the day that you can explain let's say the complexity of um, of the universe or these numbers, Ellie, like Ellie was just explaining, um, that you can explain the complexity. Um, only way really you can explain them is if you believe in a, you know, a God, a creator, a supernatural creator, 
But you're saying, Aaron, well, then if you believe in multiple, many, many universes, and this is the one that kind of got it right for people, then you can, all right, so why do scientists believe in multiverse? If there's no positive um, proof or evidence in, you know, we haven't observed any other universes, we've observed other planets within our universe. So why do so many scientists today believe, or am I wrong? Is that not true that so many scientists believe in multiverse? Yeah, that is true. That is true. Yeah, so so start off with a point about God is that I think many scientists, as many people who are not religious, I guess, are skeptical of God. They think that God, they, they know their religious friend or religious fanatics or people who just throw around the word God without any justification for it. And I think they feel like you, the, often the sentiment among scientists is that you're not solving anything by saying God. You'll ask a question, well, who created God? What, what, what's, who designed God? Who's, what does God even mean? And they have a lot of strong questions about the idea of God. So while it might seem that the evidence is pointing to an intelligent cause, they'll say that, that that's obviously not a reasonable possibility. After all, we're scientists and we know that that doesn't make any sense. They've never heard any reasonable theory about God. It's just there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of ideas thrown out there, but they feel like science and mysticism, they look at God as mysticism and therefore there can't possibly be a legitimate theory. And we must, we have to look elsewhere. If there's God, we see these numbers are fine-tuned. The only way to, the natural way to explain that would be God. That's obviously not a possibility. Let's see what else there is. I, we don't see any other universe as well. Is gonna, that's, an argue, that's an argument they use in favor of there being a multiverse, because how else in the world could you possibly have these values being you know, fine-tuned if there's only one universe? However, that's part of what we're going to do in our, in our podcast series, is we're going to have a separate mini-series on God. And we, we feel that the argument that the fine-tuning indicates God is not really a compelling argument if you can't answer those questions, if you can't formulate an idea, idea of God, which stands up to the critiques which scientists, which atheists raise against God, then we're not really solving anything. We're just pushing the problem back. Okay, so who created God? And well, you haven't really explained anything. So we show how the argument leads to a cogent theory of, about God and how to think about God. And it actually is in line with the Torah's idea of God, with the idea of Yichud Hashem, the oneness of God, and the way that those ideas about God are formulated by our giants, let's say. Like the Rambam mm -hmm. and Maimonides and the Chovos Vavos, Vavos Bachim Vikuda, that these idea, the idea of the oneness of God, is the found, foundation of the Torah, and the appropriate way to think about God actually solves the problems which scientists raise. But, but Ellie, to distill what you're suggesting, you are suggesting, which by the way, I'm not saying I disagree with, but I just want to make sure so it's clear to me and to our listeners that the reason why the scientific world, or maybe it's not the whole scientific world, but the part of the scientific world that accepts the multiverse theory are accepting it because there's no other rational explanation to the precision and complexity of our world, other than to say that there must be other universes out there. They just cannot accept that there would be a God because they have such negative um, associations with God or religious people that they're going to have to go with a theory that they can't prove bec because the alternative is God. I mean, I, are you, are you, are you going as far as. That's, that's part of what I'm saying. That's not a hundred, but not a hundred percent true. That's part what I'm suggesting is the reason why God is not a possibility is because they don't have a sophisticated idea of God and God to them is a big mystery and doesn't explain everything. That's one that's why they're not willing to recognize God. But that's not the only reason why they believe in a multiverse. Uh, I'm not, we're not suggesting that. There are, other, there are other indications or reasons why they believe in a multiverse. But this is why God is not an yeah, option. Yeah, so, I mean... And maybe, Aaron, you want um, to talk about the other... There's certain theories, like they have um, called eternal inflation, which leads them to believe that an extrapolation of, of interpreting our one universe... If you don't want to have inflation fine-tuned, it's that inflation is the idea that the universe expanded really quickly after the Big Bang, um, then it would lead to, let's say, an infinite number of universes. And again, it's not observed and it's not proven, but it's an extrapolation from a current theory they have. Or they have string theory, um, 
which has so many different possible versions of it, um, they, you know, which could be considered a, a flaw in string theory. They say, well, maybe if there's an infinite number of universes, every different version of string theory is a little complicated physics exists. We're going to go all through this. Not only are we going to do an, a mini series on God, we're going to do a mini series on the multiverse because this is the mainstream belief of scientists. Mm -hmm. So there are there are there are what they call supports for multiverse, and there's reasons that they're motivated to believe something like that. But and I I, I really think that uh, most scientists. So, so look, some some scientists hate the multiverse because they think it's not scientific. It's you're you're you have to change the definition of science in order to accept multiverse as science, because mm -hmm. the scientific method has always been, you know, prediction and observation being compared to reality. So you really have to change what is accepted as science if you want to say multiverse is science. And there are, mm -hmm. there are numbers of science, you know, a number of scientists who just hate that idea of changing what we mean by science that's worked for 300 years in order to accommodate the multiverse. Um, but even beyond those the scientists who hate it, I think even multiverse scientists, they know it's a very wild and speculative theory. The parallel universes, whoever heard before 20 years ago that scientists actually believe in parallel unobservable universe, the whole thing sounds crazy. And mm -hmm. so I think even scientists themselves don't really want to say, and the real motivation for why is, is, is of why they believe in the multiverse is, is much closer to what Ellie's saying is because they just think the idea of God, they say, look, they say, they say God is impossible. You know, we have quotes from Lee Smolin saying just God is an impossible theory. doesn't make any sense. They just, they really just, they, you know, they, they, they really think it's a, it's a, it's a dumb theory. It doesn't make any, it doesn't make any, it's not coherent. It's not logical. It's just totally faith. And, you know, we're going to show that, that it's, that's not true. It's a coherent, logical theory, which is the intuitive interpretation of a, a, an idea that emerges from this whole fine-tuning argument is God. And I think if they understood the idea of God's oneness and the way we're going to present it, it's a very rational, clear way, um, I think they'd be much more willing to accept um, that interpretation as opposed to multiverse. I don't think they love the multiverse, but it becomes the only option if you think God is impossible. No, no. Interesting. And... Let's go a little to, this is very helpful, guys. Thank you. Let's go a little to um, not the complexity, um, you know, sort of evidence or basis for believing in God, but the the way the world came into existence to begin with. Right? The famous Stephen Hawking's in his famous book, uh, The Grand Design, he said, because, and I'm quoting, he said, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the, the blue torch paper and set the universe going. So tell us, what, what's your feeling on this? Why is Stephen Hawking wrong in your opinion? Because he's saying the world can on its own come into existence. Now, we weren't arguing that it couldn't. We were saying until now in our conversation, that because of the complexity of the universe, the best explanation is God. The most compelling argument is God, okay? But what about the, this would be more the um, cosmological um, approach, that the cosmos came into existence. Can something exist from nothing? What we call creation ex nihilo, we believe that God's the only one who can create something from nothing, but we human beings can only take something. So how did the world get into existence? Hawking seems to claim, is claiming here that that um, the world can come, something can come from nothing. Is that true? So <laughs> the reason that this, this is really the reason why we don't use the Big Bang or the fact that the universe seemed to have a, you know, seems to have a beginning as the argument because it does it does run into this you know scientists will say that that it came from nothing now just just to clarify when hawking is saying that it come, came from nothing it didn't come from absolutely nothing it came from the laws of physics quantum mechanics and general relativity or he's saying gravity there it's the laws of physics are a fundamental existence in hawking's theory they have no cause they're eternal existences and through mm -hmm. those laws they generate a, a universe from nothing so we don't want to argue with scientists. In, in our podcast, we never argue science with scientists. We do not. We're, we at, at all. We're not arguing. You know, we're, we're not professional physicists. And we're not going to argue science with scientists. We're only accepting the scientific consensus on fine tuning, um, and that there, you know, the universe, let's say, had a big bang. Um, but we're not going to 
like is 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 Big Bang really the beginning? Multiverse scientists disagree. They say that there's an eternal universe that cycles back and forth. So we, we're not going to we don't try to prove the idea of God from the fact of creation or the fact that the universe has a beginning because it runs into other scientific arguments. The arguments we use are accepted by scientists. The question is, what's the interpretation? Is the interpretation a multiverse or is interpretation God? But, but I'm, 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 just to simplify this, do we, we do believe as Jews, the Torah subscribes to the idea that at some point there was a moment where the world was not. There was a lot of time when the world was not, and then it came into existence. Okay, we believe that God caused that to happen. Uh, right, but right. Right. <laughs> I, be I believe that too. I believe that too. And yes. but not all scientists agree to that. And that's a much more. That's a much you know that it seems pretty compelling because of the Big Bang that that's the case. But there's that, room to argue. Well, there's room for. It seems compelling that there was a moment of creation. Yes. Right. Right. And yes. and the world, the world of science believes that too. They believe in the Big Bang theory. The only. The disagreement? No, I'm, explain. No, no, no. There, there, there is. There's disagreement. For example, multiverse scientists believe like um, that there you could have an eternal cycle of universes, or you know, an infinite uh, numbers of universes. Each one has its own Big Bang, but all matter might be eternal. Um, so it's not really. There's no real. They used to. They, when, you know, the, the simple interpretation of the Big Bang is that the universe has a beginning. And I would agree with that, 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 that it does. And certainly as Torah Jews, we believe that, but it's not as um, compelling and convincing to argue that, that that has to be the case. The arguments that we use are better than that. That's why, that's why we're, we don't use that. We don't use the argument from the begin, beginning of the Big Bang because it lends itself to, there's room for scientists to argue that. The arguments that we use, there really isn't an argument for them to, uh, you know, for them to say anything other than, let's say, a multiverse and randomness, things like so that. When, so what's your argument then? If, can, can you distill it in like a minute? <laughs> no, as well. Well, the idea, I mean, this argument we just said that basically the what, what Hawking is saying is, is that these, the universe comes from nothing. But what he really means is the universe comes from the laws of nature, mm -hmm. which he's talking about. He says gravity or quantum mechanics. And the idea is these laws themselves have constants that are built into them. The laws take on a specific form, and those laws are fine-tuned. And we've science has discovered that those constants are not just any old constants, but they have to be specific values in order for, even with the Big Bang and with all, all, of, all of the assuming that Hawking is right, the universe would come from nothing, but it would never, emer would never result in the formation of atoms, of molecules, of stars, of planets, of life, of anything, if the constants in those laws, which Hawking believe are eternal, weren't fine-tuned to be precisely those mm -hmm. values, which mm -hmm. would result in the future emergence of our universe those, all those years later. So it's, yes, the universe, even granted that the laws themselves could generate a universe, which, again, we don't believe that they, that they do. We believe God did it. But even granted those laws, but the form which those laws take, the constants which they have, are fine-tuned. And that points to intelligence. The fact that the numbers are precisely those numbers necessary for the future emergence of, uh, of our complex universe indicates that the, the values of the constants are explained by a teleological cause, by a God who set them with a purpose of bringing about our universe. So how do they respond to that art, to what you just said, that... You know, you just argued essentially that all of these laws, including gravity, they're very fine tuned and they had to pre-exist. They had to exist in order for the world to come into being, in order for the world then to continue to develop the way it did. So what does what, what Hawking say? Like, what, what's his response to that? What would be, you know, the classic scientific response to, well, where do those laws come from? Where do those finely tuned laws that were necessary for the world to get? To where it is today, right. and then right. come into existence. Where, where did that come from? They, they, how does it? I'm, I'm repeating myself. Sorry. Right. Right. I understand. Yeah. So, so yeah. The answer is that they suggest that although these are the laws and these are the fine-tuned constants in our universe, and every observation we've ever done indicates these constants are constant. They're fixed. They always are these same fine-tuned values. In truth, there's an infinite multiverse 
of many, many, infinitely many universes, and which we can't see or observe or verify, but in each one of these universes, the constants are different values. Again, we've never observed anything like that, the constants changing, but they suggest that in different universes, every one of the universes, these hypothesized universes, there's a different set of values for these constants. And therefore, the fact that our values are fine-tuned is just the result of we happen to be in the fortunate one. We're an observation bias that we happen to be in the one universe out no, of I... infinitely many, which happen to have the right values of the constants. So that's the... that's the yeah. That explains how things develop on their own, maybe, you know, the complexity and all that. But in terms of the initial coming into being, if where do those rules and laws come from if there was nothing before? So the, for the laws themselves, Hawking, Hawking believes, or, you know, believed before he died recently, that, um, mm. that the laws are eternal. They're just, they just are that way. Just like when, if you were to ask somebody, where did God come from? So I think he's going to say, look, that God is the first principle. He's, he exists. He's a fundamental existence. There is nothing that causes God. He causes everything else. A scientist will say that the laws of nature are just fun. They are the fundamental existences. They're these complex equations that govern all physical reality. They might generate universes on their own, according to Hawking and other mm -hmm. physicists. And they have no cause. They just are that way because they are that way. And you can't ask that question because which is which is legitimate in a certain sense. It's legitimate to say that everybody's, no matter who you are, whether, you're, whether you believe in God, whether you were a physicist, there is going to come a point where you can say, I can't explain any further. I can't say right. what caused God, and they can't say what causes the laws of nature. They're just going to say, those, those are their gods in a certain sense. Their gods yeah, are complex so they equations. Are, I mean, so Aaron, you're, you're, they're really attributing you know, certain power to the laws, to, to nature itself, the way we attribute that power Absolutely, they, they believe in these in these powerful equations. God, they're, they're you know they're at, they're uncaused, but they're but they're, they're they're complex. I mean, they have a lot of parts. There's different parts to these equations. They're not simple. They don't have they're not like one God in that sense. And they also they're unintelligent. That's like the big argument. They hold that these laws are unintelligent. They don't know what they're doing, but they're infinitely powerful. So they create. There's these infinite powerful, stupid laws or unintelligent laws, let's say in a nicer way. There's these infinitely powerful, unintelligent laws that just create infinite numbers of universes. The laws don't know what they're doing, but since they make an infinite number of universes with garbage everywhere, that none of the 99.9% .9 of these universes don't have anything interesting in them because the laws don't know what they're doing. But then by chance alone, you end up with a couple of universes that have the right constants and the right laws of nature, and you get this amazing, wonderful universe that we live in. So they do have God, gods in a certain sense. They're just not intelligent. That's, that's so interesting. Right. And, and they can explain. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Right. As opposed to. I'm uh, sorry. As opposed to we start with the, the, the point is that we observe there to be one universe. That's all that any, any indication, any science tells us that we see one universe. And anything we see about this one universe is that these constants are fixed constant values they call them constants of nature and assuming that given going with that the fact that the values of these constants are fixed fine-tuned in a manner which is necessary for the future emergence of our unbelievable complex universe that points to the mm -hmm. fact that this mm -hmm. one universe was fine-tuned listen even if you did subscribe creator. to multiverse let's say we just for the sake of argument we believe we start to believe in multiple universes, even though they're not observable. Um, you know, you still have to explain how these laws came into existence in any universe. Uh, where where did they come from? You know, so you're saying the scientists believe it's just they're embedded within the physical universe. They were always there. I mean, is that kind of like what Aristotle, you know, the great um, debate between Maimonides and Aristotle, I think he believed in the eternity of the universe and the Rambam couldn't accept that. Maimonides couldn't accept because we believe in a point of creation. Aristotle never believed in a point of creation. So do, do these scientists subscribe to that? They, they really be, believe it's sort of the, in the eternity of the universe. It always existed. So some, not, not the, the quote that you read by Hawking is not, whole, he's, not he's not saying the eternity of the universe. Hawking is saying the eternity of the laws. The laws are these absolute realities. 
and they generate a universe. Uh, but there are a lot of, of scientists who still believe in an eternal universe, meaning matter mm -hmm. itself is eternal, energy is eternal, and that it goes through different phases and out of the eternal energy, different universes spawn out. So there's still an argument um, among mm -hmm. scientists whether matter is eternal or matter has a beginning like it seems at the Big Bang. But all of them say that the laws of nature are eternal. The laws of physics have no prior cause because I shouldn't say all of them. There are some scientists who believe in God, but they all say the laws of physics are these abstract universal principles that exist. And then there's a question whether energy itself is created by these laws or energy is eternal and has always existed. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, that's really helpful. Now, you guys quote um, various physicists um, scientists in your podcast, you mentioned uh, Richard Feynman, uh, also Steven Weinberg, who of course was Jewish. He famously said that the more we study the universe, the more it seems pointless. Now, given the fact that he um, and other scientists agree with him, and you guys have the same physics he's looking at, we're all operating with the same facts here, but we're coming out with different conclusions. Um, what, what makes you guys different? You know, is it the fact that you were just raised to believe in God or you spent a lot of years in yeshiva or is it something that, I mean, do you believe you believe what you're believing? <laughs> Even if you didn't spend all those years in yeshiva or been raised to believe in God, I'm curious because the, the, yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, we could. You know, there are various answers to that question, but I mean, one of them, I think, is actually related to the subject of our podcast. And, and I think this is this is part of what's motivating us to make this podcast and to try to bring these ideas to a broader audience is that scientists like Weinberg and like Hawking, they make statements like this. They, God is outdated. We don't need God anymore. The world is pointless. And people who respect scientists, they say, oh, see that the scientists say that this is outdated. and we, if you want, you could just believe in what our rabbis told us, or we could accept these great scientists who everyone respects. And we're trying to show that it actually comes down to this point. Scientists themselves, you, you don't, because of fine tuning, you, you, don't, you have to believe in something. You could believe in an infinite multiverse, which is pointless, where there's a chaotic sea of infinite universes, all of which are totally chaos, different constants, and we happen to be in the one lucky coincidental universe, and then everything really is pointless. Or you could see the indication of modern science that there is fine-tuning, that our universe was designed for a purpose by a god or a creator. And the argument of modern physics is pointing in the direction of a purpose, of a creator who created it for a purpose. And then we believe the Torah, Hashem revealed to us, God revealed to us that purpose through the Torah. He's showing us a way to live, and we're part of that purpose. So that's in a certain sense, the basis of our religion is the not is God. And we're showing modern science points to the idea of God, and it opens, it leaves room for the fact, that, hey, if God did create the universe, did he have, is man part of the purpose? Or is that part of his goal? And we believe God revealed to us, yes, he gave us the Torah, and he showed us that we are part of the purpose. So it kind of hinges on this point, is where do you see, this very question is how do you interpret fine-tuning? If you interpret it as infinite chaos, then yeah, yes, it's pointless. It's just a random coincidence that we co happen to exist on this one universe. If on the other hand, you see how it points to a creator, which is what we are arguing, then the, why is it purposeless? On the contrary, that's the universe is created by God for a purpose of bringing about our amazing universe. And let's see what our place in that universe is. You know, for most people who are not as philosophically oriented, you know, like all of this God, no God, and the physics, is it supported or not? Like, what does it have to do with me in my life? And you just said it, which is because if there is a creator, then there has to be a point to creation. And if everything just came into being spontaneously, randomness, we could try to come up with our own meaning in life. And hopefully we'll stumble on that, you know, but it makes such a difference if one believes that this was, we're here for a purpose, for a reason. What is that reason? And that's where, the, of course, the Torah comes in. So let's dive into that for a little between now and the end of our conversation. I really appreciate this, guys. I asked this question to some other physicists who also believe in Torah and Judaism. I spoke with uh, Dr. Gerald Schroeder, famous 
MIT physicist who wrote Genesis and the Big Bang and a couple of other books. I spoke to with a Dr. Chaim Presby, very, very impressive physicist and rabbi, and Natan Slifkin, who you know is a, um, um, he's the animal doctor, but quite a scientist in his own right. Um, and I, I asked him about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, um, you know, the beginning of creation, the factual, are these factual scientific descriptions of the universe? How do you guys approach the Torah's opening chapters that describe the creation of the world and of man, people? So I, I think so I, I think it's like very important um, to distinguish between ideas that are fundamental um, principles of the Torah <clears throat> that God exists, that there's uh, divine providence, there's such a thing as miracles, things like that. That without them, the Torah doesn't work. If there's no if there's such thing as a miracle, the Torah just doesn't just doesn't work. There's no divine providence, the Torah doesn't work. Versus um, an issue where how do you interpret the literal, uh, you know, how do you interpret the, the, the verses? Are they literal? Are they figurative, metaphorical? Um, are they speaking in a scientific framework? Are they speaking in a historical framework? Are they speaking in um, a values framework? So, so those are completely different issues. How do you interpret verses versus um, in con contrasted with um, does something contradict the underlying principle of the Torah? So what we do in our approach is based on Maimonides is, is, and there's other, other of the earlier um, sages that, you know, in terms of the first two chapters of Genesis is we don't, we no longer have a tradition exactly what each thing means. And we have um, different interpretations by our sages that when they work, that's great. And when they seem to contradict modern science, then you say that it must be that we interpret them in a metaphorical way, in an allegorical way, something that that's, that's different. And you're not going to throw out the Torah because a verse has to be interpreted figuratively as opposed to literally. So those questions, they, they don't bother us and they haven't bothered the great sages of uh, Jewish ages. Um, and in truth, they're really, it's much more, I think Christians are tied to that, that philosophy that everything has to be exactly literal. I know there are, there are a lot of Jews who, who do hold that, but I, I don't think that's our, our tradition that every verse has to be taken exactly Literally, what would bother us is if something in modern science contradicted a principle in the Torah. Something in modern science showed that it's impossible to have divine providence, that it was impossible to have free will. It couldn't, miracles are impossible. God doesn't exist. Something like that, that would undermine the Torah. That would cause you to say, look, if, if modern science showed God didn't exist, you're not going to have the Torah because, or you'd have a contradiction in your mind. You'd be, you'd have a real, you'd be stuck. So those are real problems that we, that we um, spend time trying to deal with. But the questions of how to interpret the, the verses, that to us is, is a secondary issue. You'd like to take it literally if you could. If it contradicts what your mind tells you is true, then you have to interpret it metaphorically. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, thank you, Aaron. So for example, um, you know, the world was created in six days, God rested on the seventh. And that seems to be negated by a modern evolution theory. What, what's your take on that specifically? <clears throat> Right, so there's various psukim in, in Tanakh, various verses in, um, in the scriptures, which basically use the word yom to not necessarily mean a day, a 24-hour period of time, but to be referring to a period, like the period of the Messiah, you know, of Yomosa Mashiach. Or uh, maybe if some other verse mm -hmm. refers to the yom to refer to the, the, the unit of the six days of creation. So the verse, and there's various, you know, there's, um, there's a Ramban who mentions this, the word Yom sometimes doesn't refer to it in a literal day. So whereas perhaps it was until science knew that the universe was 14 billion years or whatever, it was, the, it, was, it was reasonable to believe that a Yom literally means a day, a 24-hour period. But if science indicates that that's not the case, and it indicates that the universe was actually much, much longer, so then we have, again, we have a long tradition of interpreting words of the, words of the Torah in various ways. And the word day itself is uh, refers to a period of time in, very, in right. various instances. So six days doesn't necessarily have to mean six 24-hour periods, but it could be six periods of time. And the, the verses are indicating that God didn't create the universe in one fell swoop, that it just, it was just there,
but there was an unfolding of the universe in various stages, and there were six stages and, and, of the universe until it came to its final culmination, which is Shabbos. So there's actually there's um it's an interesting statement of the of the uh, Rashba, Roshlomo ben Adaras, who um who basically from the 1200s he says something like something to the effect I don't have the quote exactly, but that it's the it's the way of the uh, pious people of our um, tradition that when they come across a, a, a verse which is proven, which the plain interpretation of it is contradicted by proven uh, knowledge, by proven science, then we interpret it metaphorically. So there's there's a long chain of uh, history of interpreting verses. As we know, it says the hand of God in the Torah, but God doesn't have a hand. He's not physical. So there's a long history of interpreting verses metaphorically when we know that that can't be the case. Of course, I would think the assumption of the verses are that they're literal, but if science shows that that's not the case, then so then then we have to reinter- reinterpret. Also, I had heard um, that's very helpful and also clear. I didn't realize that was the Rashba, the, the way of pious people um, to interpret a verse metaphorically when it goes up against uh, you know proven science. Um, is that the reason also why you know the sun is not created? A, you know, in the Torah, in Genesis, doesn't come into existence until about the fourth day, I think, right? And the way we define a day isn't the, you tell me, I'm not a scientist, I thought the way we define a day is the rotation of the world on its axis, and isn't that somehow related to the sun? If there's no sun, then can you even consider, you know, you, you don't even have to go. In other words, Ellie, you're saying, because the word, the term yom is used to denote not simply a 24-hour day, but can we say, based on the fact that the sun doesn't come into existence according to the Torah until day four, that you can't have a twenty-four hour day until the sun comes into existence? No, you could argue that. I mean, I think the Ramban at the time, again, based on his science, has thought that they were twenty-four hour periods. It's not going to be based upon the sun, but it could. You could take the amount of time which it takes for the sun for the day for our day and say somehow project that backwards. So. It's true that the, the the day isn't going to mean literally like what we interpret to be a day. Like can't be Vayerav Okay, it was day. It was evening and it was day. Can't refer to sunrise and sunset, given that the day the sun wasn't in place. But there there would be ways to interpret it as being twenty four hour periods, even though the sun isn't in place. And I think again, I think there is a Ramban who suggests that it is that it was literal. But again, there's no reason why the Ramban would suggest otherwise. We're not saying that there's a, a tradition that it's not literal. We're just saying that given that modern science indicates that the universe was not that way, yeah, I, then that indicates we have mm-hmm. to interpret it as a, as a metaphor. Because Ramban also, there's an analogous analogous Ramban, he says, this is also Nachmanides, um, who says that the plain interpretation of the verse of the Torah would lead mm-hmm. us to believe that the rainbow was created right after the flood. He says, but um, but he says it's not true. We know that the Greeks tell us that uh, that a rainbow stems from the natural properties of water and light, and therefore we have to reinterpret the verse of the Torah that when the Torah says, "I placed my rainbow in the cloud," it doesn't mean he placed it there at that moment, but it means the rainbow which he created previously was now being utilized to be a well, sign is- about uh, of the covenant between a God and, and Noah. So Ramban also is saying, "Is look, we're yeah." Based upon the science, we have to reinterpret the passage. Uh, you know, most Jews in America, let's say, have not had the benefit of yeshiva education. I have not really studied the Torah, the Bible, Hebrew scripture critically. Um, and most of most Jews, I think, understanding of Torah comes from a little more of a Christian concept because that's the civilization we live in. It's the culture. And many Christians read the Bible literally, as you said before. So this... This whole conversation I'm having with you guys right now is worth it just for this very point. For anyone who's listening to this, uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have a methodology. We just interpret verses in the Torah willy-nilly. But there is no such idea in Torah that we have to read every verse literally. Okay, when I sometimes say an eye for an eye, ayin tafat ayin, and we obviously don't read that literally. So most people think, ah, oh, that's because we're moderns. But if you would really be a biblical Jew, a Jew who takes the Torah seriously, you would pluck out, God forbid, somebody's eye if their eye was taken out. You know, and that's not the reason we don't read that verse literally. We don't read that verse literally because we have the oral tradition that teaches us how to read a verse. 
Where's the comma? Where's the period? There are no punctuation points in the Torah. So the whole thing is left up to our Misora, which is our classic understanding of how to read the biblical text. So that's a very, very important idea. Gerald Schroeder, anyone listening to this also should pick up his book on this because he makes that point in the very beginning of the book. Um, that that's not the way uh, classically Jews read the Torah. Uh, literally, if you did, you'd have a lot of problems with signs. One last question. You, you touched on this before. I think Aaron, I don't know if you said this or Ellie, that if there were things, um, Jewish values, Jewish beliefs, like providence, miracles, that science would contradict. Okay. And you did mention free will. Now, I believe in free will. And I believe what Maimonides wrote about free will, that we have the power to choose, even if we have inclinations towards a certain way. And even if I'm a little more of a chill guy, as opposed to my friend, that's more of a hothead, he still can control it. I believe in all that. But how do you guys make the case for human freedom, given the fact that so many philosophers and scientists, uh, and I wouldn't say the majority, I don't know, I don't, haven't, I don't know the numbers, but I know that there are scientists and philosophers who believe in free will and scientists and philosophers who don't. Um, how do you make the case then for free will? Or do you just say, listen, it's a Torah value. It's something Judaism believes in. Um, but is there any kind of scientific reason to believe in it or a scientific reason or the, or the reason that say some scientists give that we can't believe in free will that you, uh, you know, that you contradict that. So, I would say, um, and this, there's, there's, first you have to think about it scientifically and then philosophically. So on a scientific framework, I, I don't think there's um, anything in science that contradicts the idea of free will, because uh, I guess for two reasons. It, usually it comes from the idea, the thought that science contradicts free will comes from either the idea that people think that the laws of nature are deterministic, which is what scientists used to believe before quantum mechanics. They used to believe that Deterministic means that um, if you know one point in time, what you know what a system is in, then necessarily it always you can predict exactly where it'll be in the next point in time. Um, but in fact, we know the laws of nature are not like that. They're they're probabilistic. There there is no necessary relationship between cause and effect. Where um, you know A will always cause B. Um, it's much more complicated than that in quantum mechanics. So that's like you know past hundred years or so, we see the universe is not um, deterministic. In that sense, certainly not absolute determinism. Um, <clears throat> and also it, it comes from the question again scientifically, before you get to philosophically, from the theory that like your mind is just you're just a big computer. Your mind is just, you know, you're basically an AI. Your brain is is mm -hmm. just some sort of very complex artificial intelligence thing. Um, which which is not, it's like it is a presumption a lot of materialistic scientists um, have. Um, but it certainly hasn't been shown, proven true. Uh, Roger Penrose has um, really amazing arguments, but subtle um, against it. I think it's book Shadows of the Mind, The Emperor's New Mind, um, which he showed that your mind is, must be something more than just an algorithm, um, you know, or the way AIs work now. Um, so really from the framework of science, and this is a, lot, a much larger discussion we're having now, for the framework of science, there's no real contradiction. It really comes, you know, you really have to think about it philosophically. Um, and the question philosophically, you know, these are age-old arguments, whether such a thing as free will or not. Um, in my, in my, my mind, the way I look at it is, yes, of course, the Torah, it's a fundamental principle of Torah, and we have a tradition on that. If you can't really prove it scientifically, philosophically, then you should absolutely accept our tradition. Um, that's the way, you know, it's, that's, that's the proper methodology. But in the philosophical framework, I think that if you deny, once you deny free will, and, and you say that you are just compelled to believe everything because you have no choice, in a certain sense, you lose the whole idea of truth becomes meaningless because what you believe to be true, you're, even if it was false, you'd have to believe it's true because you're determined to believe it's true. And in a sense, it ends up undermining the human mind itself and your ability to know that, you know, if you to know that there's no such thing as free will is predicated on using your mind. And if your mind is no longer good at determining the truth because you're determined to believe whatever you believe, it ends up in a certain sense becoming circular and it's a skeptical attack on the human mind itself. So I think when you think about it, free will is part of what we mean by something being true, that you choose to believe it's true as opposed to false. 
and to reject free will ends up undermining the value of truth and the very argument against free will itself. Wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, that you can get just very sort of nihilistic and nothing means anything. If you think everything is predetermined, everything is pre-programmed. Is there any- Exactly. Is there any kind of scientific basis? You know, like we started our conversation about talking about the existence of God, and you both made a very, I think, compelling argument from numbers, um, from the specificity, the fine tuning, the complexity of the universe that there has to be a creator. Is there anything like that uh, indicating free will? Or it's really just something that, you know, as you articulated, you know, there's nothing in science that tells us we don't have free will. The Torah believes we because I can always make an argument like it's better for us to believe in free will because otherwise nothing means anything and life is pointless. Then you're just a robot, you know, like you're an actor in some sort of play that's been, been, been you know, pre-written before you even came into this world. Um, so you know, that's not really a philosophical argument. That's more of a, a practical thing. Like you want to have more meaning in life, you better believe in God and free will. That's what I've been telling people. But, you know, is there anything scientific? Uh, I mean, I, I, I doubt there is. I'm just curious because I got two scientists on the phone here. On the phone. You know what? Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I think that um, I, don't, I don't think there, there is. I mean, that's why mm -hmm. like, on our podcast, the truth is, I don't, you know, we don't give off the, the wrong impression. Our podcast is not really about religion. It's not about free will and things like that. It's really about God because there is really an incredible, compelling, convincing argument from science that God exists. Once you get to our things about free will and providence, it's there are arguments, but they're, they're not as convincing and as compelling um, as the idea that God exists. So we, we're, our podcast is not really about religion and, and these topics. We're really, it's like, it's amazing that you could really show convincingly that God exists from, from science. Um, after you know that God exists, it becomes easier to discuss providence and, and free will and things of that nature. But I, I don't know. I mean, Ellie, I don't know if you have something up your sleeve here, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think you have something. Um, Listen, the level hey, that you, what I'm talking about you guys is your intellectual sorry. honesty. And um, I really appreciate that. And I know our listeners do as well. So yeah, but I don't know. Anything else, Ellie? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to not not about the free will, but while while Aaron's talking about what we do on our podcast, I just want to mention that the conversations we've been having here today, some of them might have been a little complicated or high level in terms of the physics. It's kind of hard to talk in an hour to give an overview of what we're talking about, and sometimes we're trying to give a bird's eye view, and we may have lost some of the listeners and some of the particulars. But just want to emphasize that. I guess my profession, I'm a, I'm a professor and I teach a community college and I teach students who've never, ever understood math. And it's like our, what we try to do on our podcast is to simplify these arguments. So again, we develop the points step by step by step and we try to explain everything and we give analogies to help the listeners understand. And we're, we're really trying to, yeah, I want to come off this is like a high level People are usually scared of physics and scared of math. I know all of my students are afraid of math. And we, we assume that our podcast listeners are afraid of physics. And that's kind of, we, we made the podcast in a way that we're attempting to reach a person who's interested in the topic of God and physics, understanding whether science indicates God exists, doesn't Beautiful. exist. And we're awesome. breaking down our arguments slowly, step by step with analogies. We've made we made a YouTube videos with animations. We're trying to reach people and to break it down in a way that'll be accessible. Our our podcasts are about a half hour. What are they called, Ellie? What so are they far, called? we have um, six episodes released. Oh, I love it. And again, we're, it's called Physics to God. And Physics to God, and you can find it wherever you get podcasts. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, and I don't think there's because we have and a again, very, the point is again, I don't want to scare listenership. That's, that's my main point. They're they're so smart they could tell I just made that word up. But by the way, I want to just give you a suggestion. Ellie, I don't know if you know, but every time you've been speaking, there's a light, <laughs> there's just a light coming from above you. And that's definitely making No, 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 it's not, no, it's, a, it's, it's a just a light. Oh yeah, that's the light. And it's a like halo, that. and, and I've, been, I've been taking what Aaron has to say just as seriously, even though there's no light above Aaron's. There's, there's a thing hanging it doesn't produce light. So I'm just saying you should keep that on. On the um, Physics to God podcast, maybe you can put that on. 
give you both lights. Anyway, um, I really appreciate your time. This was amazing. And <laughs> I'm a huge fan of what you're trying to do because you're right. People are scared of math and physics, company included. These are not my areas. I was, I've always been a humanities, social sciences kind of person. But as I've gotten older, I've become more you know, interested and excited. I've been doing a lot of reading on this stuff. And I just think it's so important. And, and the work that I do, I don't know if you guys know how much uh, much about MGE. Um, if you don't, you should be ashamed of yourselves because we are we are the cat's meow. But we reach out to 20s and 30s who are not necessarily raised with um, a lot of Torah knowledge or wisdom. So, um, but are smart, well-educated, uh, successful young professionals who are out there in the world. And I have a lot of students who are scientists and are physicians and doctors and mathematicians. Great. And a lot of computer science people today um, and people have, people have these questions and people want to know what Judaism right. has to say. And, you know, th this age old, like it's like a primitive idea that religion has to be over here on one side and God and science on the other side. And the two are not. It's nonsense. Um, I've been recommending Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. He wrote a great book called The, the Great Partnership. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read it, um, really worthwhile read. And it's about how science and religion are necessary for each other and how they're supposed to work together. And, and he drills down into Torah, into Judaism, how Torah was really meant to be studied alongside science and taught as one sort of wholesome, you know, body of knowledge. And you guys are doing that. So I give you my yarmulkes off to you guys. And I wish you a lot of mazel and bracha in your podcasts everybody who's listening is called from physics to god and by aaron zimmer and ellie fader um thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and um i look forward to continuing the conversation